Welcome to Obsessed with Design, a show about what makes designers tick. I'm your host, Josh Miles. Happy New Year's and welcome to 2018. As our very first episode of the year, I'm excited to be kicking off season three with a whole host of exciting interviews. The first today is the first ever design producer at Twitter, Josh Silverman. Although Josh and I spend the first few minutes of the episode talking all about food, I promise we get into his origin story and more about the design culture at Twitter. This is a really thoughtful interview from a guy that I've known for a long time, so I hope you'll enjoy this ranging conversation with Josh Silverman. Okay, kids, welcome all the way from San Francisco, California, Josh Silverman. Josh is the first design producer at a little company you may have heard of called Twitter. As he shares on his LinkedIn profile, his role is strategic, cultural, and situational, bridging the product, marketing, and brand teams, ushering in a new set of design principles for the global team. I met Josh back in the day when he was running his own practice, Schwa Design, on the East Coast, and while we were both very involved in chapter and national leadership with AIGA. And in my past few visits to San Francisco, he's been kind enough to try to get me to come visit the Twitter HQ, but it hasn't worked out just yet. So Josh, I'm excited to chat with you today about your story, but first, welcome to Obsessed with Design. Thanks, Josh. Uh, You missed a great lunch today at Twitter HQ, so hopefully we'll get you in for the next one. Oh, do tell. What kind of lunch do you have at Twitter HQ? It's a food program. I mean, it definitely qualifies as not just your typical lunch. And I've I've never worked, quote, in tech, unquote, before. And so um, when I first came to Twitter years ago to visit a friend here for lunch, I I gathered my bottomless salad and my delicious kombucha and my side of this and my pickled that. And I was like, where's the cash register? And I just got this like, mm-mm. <laughs> New guy. Of, head shaking totally new guy um yeah our food's our food's pretty ridiculous here Um, used to be 140 ingredients i hear but now it's up to 280 it's a freaking jambalaya what can i say (laughs) well we could probably talk about the food uh because if if i wasn't doing a design podcast i think it would be a food podcast but let's um, talk about food (laughs) (laughs) probably should i had some uh some amazing uh food when i was there a couple weeks ago too uh, not at Twitter, of course. Oh, yeah. San Francisco has delightful food options, and uh, the Twitter food program is uh, is one of the options. But there's there's things nearby we can walk to. Um, one of the coolest uh, lunch options before I joined Twitter, um, I worked in a different neighborhood, and, uh, and this place called Itza. It's like a self-serve. You tap on an iPad what you want. It's, it's quinoa-based. Like, quinoa is the is the commonality among most of the dishes, like 80 to 90% of the dishes. And um, you don't interface with any human other than the people who are saying it's it's next, you know, you're next in the queue. Mm-hmm. Um, you tap on the iPad, you watch your name on screen, and then there's a little window that says, like, your order is ready. And you never see anyone behind the scenes making your dish. Uh, and it's kind of amazing that we have this here. It's It, it's, it harkens back to, like, the, the automats of the... 50s and 60s probably yeah. probably earlier than that but uh, i remember going to those as a kid before they closed and it feels like a 2.0 of that well i got introduced to um what is it phil's coffee phil's mm-hmm. with a z 
Yep. And had some crazy iced mojito coffee thing that was just. Yes, you did with mint. Oh my goodness. So much mint. Yeah. My boyfriend used to work there. Uh, and, uh, it's amazing to have every kind of custom cup made just for you. <laughs> Use special little snowflake. <laughs> Such a snowflake. Well, <laughs> For fear of talking about nothing but food and beverages, although I wouldn't be upset about it. Beverages, you know? what? Beverages? <laughs> we, could talk, we haven't started talking about that. Okay, go on. Sorry. So I always love talking to our guests about their origin stories. And mm. with you in particular, I want to unpack this because, and I'm sure I'm not even connecting all the dots, but outside of, you know, running your own practice, you, you know, worked for Big Blue for a bit and now Twitter and then. I would, I'd like to understand somewhere in the mix how you got introduced to design in the first place and then kind of made it on your journey from Yale to San Francisco. Sure. Um, that's, uh, that's a 45-year-old story and it keeps unfolding. <laughs> I, to go way, 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 way back, I was a kid doodling logos. And because I was uh, musical, I played the piano for dozen years, um, I would come up with jingles for companies and brands that I didn't, that didn't exist, that I didn't like know how, how else to combine my passions. And it, it was innate. And I didn't know that what I was doing was called graphic design until I got to high school. And I was in a, I was in a two different high schools. The first, uh, this first sort of episode of high school was like this public school that was terribly um, designed. It was a terrible experience. I didn't perform well there. I wasn't happy there. And then um, I went to a private school sophomore, starting in my sophomore year. And that private school uh, was small and more intimate and more project-based, if you will. And I met some friends that I'm still friends with to this day at the school. And lo and behold, in the art barn catalog, there was this course called graphic design. And I looked at the job, job description. I looked at the course description and uh, and I saw that it was a lot of the things that I was already doing, and I didn't know that it was called graphic design. Um, and that's really when I thought, hmm, this is a profession. People can get paid for this much fun. <laughs> and uh, and I started doing it. I, I took the class and I learned about 2D versus 3D, and that was um, 88, 89. So the world of design tools was very different, but the fundamentals were still the same. How do you create... Uh, a story? How do you create tension between 2D and 3D, between text and image? How do you use the tools to create your vision? Um, and how do you communicate what your vision is? And those were those were the early days of, of my design work. I was happy that um, I was accepted to the senior independent study program, which meant that the last five weeks of the school year, we were encouraged to do an internship as long as we benefited a community organization, basically a .org, even though in 89 it didn't really exist. <laughs> right. Um, not in the way that it does now. So that summer I graduated high school. I had an internship, which was a continuation of my senior independent study. I was learning professional practice. I was learning how to answer the phone and take a message. I was learning how to present work. I went to my first few press checks. I was I was very doe-eyed and, and excited and eager and absorbing all the things. And uh, I was hooked. I was like, holy shit, this is, this is what I want to do. And I didn't know till high school that it was a mm -hmm. potential career. So it was, it was using the power of design 
for the benefit of a community. And, you know, it's no, it's no surprise that you and I met through AIGA, given that. And let's see, I can cut to running my own business for 18 years was a way of learning a lot by doing it. Um, the holocratic model that was Schwa design was lean before lean was a really a thing. And I was happy to match and curate, match people with projects and curate project teams to solve particular problems. And then the short story of my second business was using workshop models, uh, to help startups at different growth stages, accelerate their, their business objectives through design. Um, through getting all the right people in the room to achieve a particular purpose in a workshop, whether that was content strategy or a pitch deck or a better version of a pitch deck or how to hire or how to present your pitch deck. I think the, the workshop model was, um, was the focus of my second business. And I learned to see patterns in different stages of startups um, along the way um, and how design and content and various forms of execution could help them accelerate their business. And then joining Big Blue, um, I suppose Twitter could be called Little Blue, although I haven't <laughs> thought about that till right now. Let's work on that. Um, <laughs> okay, branding <laughs> 2.0. IBM was a fascinating and very educational, very global way of seeing how to take workshops and IBM design tools and match them to a particular business problem, similar to what I was doing with Startnership, but at this point, IBM was like paying for everything. Like, I, you know, IBM sent its designers across the globe mm -hmm. to do workshops. And I was happy to have that global experience, and especially when it came to customizing some of the IBM design tools to a particular market. And what I was realizing while at IBM was that the IBM Bluemix garage, of which I was a part of the San Francisco team, had six locations and there were slightly different stories about what the purpose of the garage was. And I wanted to work on the operations of the garage. I wanted to work on telling the consistent story and making sure that designers and systems architects and engineers all were aligned on that story. And that is the job that I'm doing at Twitter, but in a different capacity. Um, as the first design producer on the product team at Twitter, I'm thinking horizontally and looking horizontally across different teams and connecting the dots and connecting collaborations. But I'm also looking outside of product to marketing and brand and engineering and PMs. And it's a lot of connecting dots. It's a lot of systems thinking. It's a lot of horizontality. And, uh, and it's amazing that, that, uh, that this is my job because it's, it's sort of like exactly where I need to be right now doing this kind of work. Help me unpack a little bit. I guess with just maybe a little more color, what the design climate is like at Twitter today, because, you know, you hear so much about sure. various startups, some that are very, um, let it, let's say obsessed with design and others where design kind of gets a backseat over a product and iterating and more of the hacker culture. Where would you say that, um, the role of design fits in at Twitter? We have a very strong design leadership culture here, and I'm happy to be in a role that is not aesthetic. Um, I think that across the board, product is very entrepreneurial, and I love that about working here. We're constantly tinkering with the app, with what you see. Um, there are probably a thousand versions of the product right now based on you, how you use Twitter, who you follow, what content you respond to, um, what A-B tests we're running, uh, 
how you respond to those. Nobody has nobody's Twitter is exactly like anyone else's Twitter, and that's really fascinating. Mm. I mean, I mean, at its core, Twitter is giving everyone with an uh, an email address and a and an ad handle a voice, and you get to use that however you want. Um, just this morning, we were in Design Critique thinking about what's next for verification, and it's a philosophical discussion. It's like how do we support people understanding that this person is who they say they are without lending uh, an additional uh, level of we we sort of support this person. Verification at, it, at its core is like, are you the person offline in the real world that you are mm-hmm. online? And that's that gets difficult when it's when it's bots and it gets difficult when the perception is that a blue check mark means that we endorse your content, um, and that's not what it's for. So we have a lot of like philosophical discussions during crit. We have a lot of like aesthetic and non-aesthetic discussions, um, and I think because our VP reports directly to Jack, uh, we have a seat at every table, um, and that's that's really important for the designers here uh, and the designers who are working globally. I guess, for example, just earlier today, I tweeted to at Santa Claus. So I'm especially curious mm-hmm. how you verified his account, but uh, <laughs> I'm not questioning it. I'm just saying he's got to be hard to reach. Uh, we have some ways. <laughs> no, I don't know. Excellent. I don't know. We have a red phone somewhere in some some conference room. I'm sure that goes directly to him. Well, I think related to the sort of the design culture, how that plays into the culture at at Twitter, you were telling me kind of at the top of the show about how you found your life and your desires are kind of moving the opposite of real time and how that's such a good fit for a company that's in the moment. Can you um, help explain that a little bit better? Absolutely. Um, So Twitter at its core is uh, about what's happening now, 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 now. And that is a phenomenal pace. Um, It's a, a really critical um, product at a critical time. Um, and I think that we have done a good job as a company, um, to make that relevant. I don't think the world would exist, uh, without it right now. And I think it's done amazing work at connecting people. And I think we have a lot of work to do on, uh, abuse and we are working on it, but regardless of, of what people use the product for, it's about present. It's about what's happening uh, right now. The work that I'm doing is contextual and situational, as you said, at the top of the the hour. But I think the way that we need to think about working with each other um, will not change. The way that we need to think about what preferences do you have for communications channels? That is something that we can all solve for each other. Like, for example, do I do I reach you on DM? Do I text you? Do I reach you on Slack DM or Twitter DM? What hours of the day do you work best? Um, do you prefer to work in a darkened cave or do you want to work on the roof deck in full sunlight? But what I'm getting at, Josh, is like the more that we think about things that are persistent, the more we will be able to better work with each other. And that feels like it's at a different time scale than how Twitter functions. But I think it's still important to think about it um, in any company, especially um, in a company that, that at its core, the DNA is about what's happening right now. 
So something I was snooping around a little bit and I, I'm not sure I quite got to the bottom of. So tell me a little bit about what Horizon is and what, what that is in relationship to Twitter. Horizon is the internal uh, name for our product design system. And I love the name uh, and I helped with you know, picking among a few candidates for the brand of Horizon. Um, affectionately, it feels to me like it's something that is longer term. It's something that birds and humans use to navigate. We have a lot of bird-centric <laughs> yeah. nomenclature. A lot of our conference rooms are different birds. I'm in Merganser right now. So the horizon is what's used to navigate. And similarly, um, we want to make sure that the product design team and other teams who need to intersect with our system use the tools uh, and, and use the guide to help them navigate. And that means that we have sketch plugins uh, so that you can always get the freshest UI elements. That means we have classes when we introduce a new feature um, or we have a weekly e-newsletter that we send out to people who uh, want to know what's, what's new and what's updated in Horizon. It's a, it's a great tool. It's a wonderful um, way of keeping all of our mocks consistent. And as we continue to up, update the design, we'll update Horizons. Luckily, when, when I joined, it was already being supported by, by executives. And as with any design system, it needs to be treated like a project and supported like any other kind of project with executive sponsorship. Maybe you could inspire and enlighten our listeners to tell us a little bit about what maybe a um, typical, if there is such a thing, a typical day or week looks like for you. You know, how much of your time is spent in meetings and administrative stuff versus, you know, working with designers or working with the product team or brand team. And, you know, if there's any travel or other, other things that you do that would kind of be part of that role. Yeah, happy to. Um, Tuesday as is today is a crit day. Um, and, uh, nine to five, typically we have design critiques. I, I've run design crits this year. We we have designers around the globe, uh, London, New York, here in SF, um, in Seattle. And uh, what I love about crits is that I see all phases of projects, um, from brainstorms and pitch decks for new features to I'm about to ship this and what are the last couple of tweaks I need to uh, to make before I hand it off to Eng. And that's really fascinating. It's it's an ongoing education. I do a lot of work with different teams. I work primarily within the product design team, but uh, necessarily we need to collaborate with other teams. So yesterday I had a meeting about internal communications and what the employee experience might be if we considered it end-to-end. So in other words, can we treat uh, employee experience as a flow? And does that start with uh, the job descriptions? Does that start with first round of interviews? And does it end with exit interviews? And what are the different touch points, myriad touch points along the way? I'm interested in people and I'm interested in um, collaborating with our people team um, because everything comes down to people. And so that employee and end experience is, is but one of many different kinds of people projects I might work on next year. Um, I just made my 2018 roadmap, so I'm not sure that like any of the things I'm sharing with you now will come to fruition as a little caveat. But one of the things that I'm also managing is our new blog on Medium. It's not it's new on Medium, but we had a blog 
for a while, and now it's um, got a regular cadence and uh, an editorial calendar and a, and a system. So I'm supporting that, which is exciting. We have a design education program that I'm managing. So we have speakers January through April next year, some, some wonderful local luminaries to come and um, help us think about how they approach their work. Uh, the first talk will be from Andrea Mallard, who's the CMO of Athleta. And her talk is called Fail, which I'm really excited to hear. She's sharing the three top mistakes that she's made in her career and how she's learned from them. Mm, very cool. It's, it's a lot of different things in a lot of different timescales. And I'm really happy about that because it keeps me, it keeps me entertained <laughs> in a way. It also keeps me like really motivated to continue to like spin multiple plates on multiple uh, timeframes. Well, I love the fact that, that Twitter has their own speaker series of designers coming in to keep you inspired. I'm sure there are so many things going on in San Francisco, especially different design events that you could attend, but how cool is it that you're curating your own series? Yeah. And better yet, we're even going to periscope it. So anyone can join, anyone can see it. And we're, that means we'll record them and, and you can see it if you're not able to attend while it's happening live. Oh, very cool. I am making certain assumptions just based on how you kind of described your role, but is, is there a team of you or is there, <laughs> is there only <laughs> one Josh Silverman or only one, one man in the producer design producer role? It's a really interesting question, Josh. I, when I started in this role, I, I did some research and asked friends at Uber, Airbnb, Etsy, Google ventures, Pinterest, I, the same question. I'm like, uh, I know that you have producers. How, how, what is your org chart and where do producers sit? How do your producers do their work? And what I realized is that a lot of producers act horizontally mm -hmm. um, and think horizontally. But at Twitter, there is only one producer within product. There are other producers within brand. But what I'm seeing is that there needs to be a team of producers to really help connect all the dots. Pinterest has a really interesting model where they have producers in each feature team. So search might have a producer and um, pins might have a producer and brand might have a producer and they coordinate, which is really fascinating. But I think that there, there could be a team of producers within product to help move stuff, ship stuff faster. Not sure that there's going to be an open role for that, but it, it keeps me busy and that's, that's exciting. I'll always have something to do. Well, maybe shifting gears a little bit. Let's talk a little bit about Startnership. So obviously you've got kind of the, the internal view of this today at Twitter, but um, I'm curious when you were doing this externally, how you decided who you were going to work with and really what, what made a good client or what made a company who is maybe prime for that type of work? Really cool question. Startnership solves the problem that startups have at different growth stages. When it's two people in a garage, you know, the startup, like, you know, story of all stories, when it's two people working out of a garage and there's only two of them and they, they each wear a hundred hats, um, they may have had some of the conversations that they needed to have to talk about their story, to talk, to talk about their business, to talk about their, their goals and their aspirations and what they want to do and what kind of roadmap they have uh, for a business. When you're three people or you're five people and you might be working remotely or 
um, in different locations or um, not all showing up in the same office, let's say, you necessarily need more coordination the more your team grows and more consistency of that story. And let's say you pivot and you have a different story or you need to have a different story. Design as the way to bring people together to figure out a problem is what Startnership's goals were as a business. And the way to solve that problem is get everyone in a room, figure out what the problems are, outline them in a really focused agenda, and focus and have like two or three or five uninterrupted days where you can solve that problem, where you can finish 80% of the work in a short time. So the goal of Startnership was to get to value faster. Um, and it was different than crowdsource design, which we don't even want to go into, or a startup agency, which might have a more collaborative waterfall model, mm-hmm. or hiring someone in-house um, who's freelancing on the side. You want that focused attention. And through that, you create a shared experience. You create a shared sense of purpose and you get the deliverables faster and you get to value faster. Um, and that's really what Startnership's goals were. I still think it's a valid model, but when I was running it, as I was selling it and as I was pitching it to designer fund and other potential sources of referrals, it was clear that the idea was a good one, but it needed, like any other startup business, it needed early adopters. It needed it needed to have holes poked in it. And I was here, I moved to San Francisco essentially to like start Startnership. And I was happy that I had some case studies and some early adopters to help validate that this was a useful approach. But at the same time, I was like crashing on my friend's couches, (laughs) Airbnb being my super expensive apartment in the mission at the time. Um, just so that I could pay rent mm-hmm. and uh, racking up credit card bills and flying back and forth to New York. I was still based in Providence. Mostly I had like stuff in a house and a cat in my house and my and my life in Providence was there, but I wanted to be here. And it was too much all at once for me to like resolve without breaking. Yeah. So so I thought that, uh, that I, I still think it's a really smart way of approaching business problems. And I still think that there's a pattern to people, problems, and place. So if you if you think about who the people are in the room, what the problem is they're trying to solve, what place they're solving it, and I don't mean like San Francisco versus New York. I mean like, are you in uh, an environment that's conducive to collaboration? Can you focus for a few days? What is the value of founders or a couple of co-founders and early hires clearing their schedule for this this much focus? And that that involves a lot of faith and trust and, and management. So I think that at some point, like someone else, I mean, I, I've actually seen companies that are doing work similar to this. One was called Luxor, and I'm friends with the person who started that um, and folded that. It's a, it's a hustle. It's a constant hustle. And I think if Startnership were like incubated in a VC firm or Startnership methodologies were part of a kind of nurturing environment rather than uh, doing it alone, I think it would have been more successful. Yeah. I think it's an intriguing idea. I think one of the, one of the challenges, um, (laughs) maybe one of the many challenges of being a designer is you have the, maybe the optimism and the vision to see those kinds of solutions. And sometimes it's just ahead of its time or, or at least ahead of its funding. But, but I think it was, uh, you know, 
yeah, it, it definitely an intriguing concept, no less. Thanks. I, I think I think the other signs that I was seeing, like John Meta joining Kleiner Perkins and the other kinds of like design and tech industry signals, were other uh, encouragements that I was on the right path. But I didn't really want to run out of money and move back to the East Coast, and I didn't really want to continue sleeping on friends' couches. I felt like I was overstaying my my welcome, even on my friend Amanda's couch. And I was like, uh, honey, I'm going to give you back your key, and I have other things that I need to do <laughs> with my life. So <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. Time will tell. Well, maybe outside of the whole couch surfing issue, you know, as, as designers, both um, on the aesthetic side and, and on the conceptual and the, you know, strategic side, we all hit these, these bumps in the road or, you know, issues or red flags or whatever you want to call it. How do you get yourself personally kind of back in the right frame of mind or, you know, what, how do you shake those things off or where do you go for kind of a fresh inspiration? Excellent question. Of the many reasons why I moved to California, one of them is being able to be outdoors all year round. And I'm an outdoors enthusiast. I love to hike and uh, I love to cycle. So exercise is one of the ways that I can carry myself through any depression, any kind of downturn, any kind of loss of optimism. I think optimism is required. As a designer, you're helping someone else or you're helping yourself bring something to life that didn't exist. And that optimism is one of the things that's going to carry that through. Exercise is one. Friends are another. Uh, I love to cook and I love to start and finish a project Mm -hmm. in one evening and then (laughs) eat the results. Some of the things take a long time. Here we are back on food. Sorry, not sorry. (laughs) Some of the things take a long, some of the things you work on take weeks, months, years to ship. And what I love about cooking is that even if it's a cassoulet and it's going to take you five days to properly soak the beans like the French do, <laughs> when you're starting to cook the cassoulet and you have your mise en place and you're like doing the work, you can start and finish and digest a meal in a couple of hours. And that's very satisfying and nurturing, especially if you have access to wonderful ingredients like we do in California. So it's, it feels nurturing. And sometimes I turn to literature, sometimes I turn to like Walt Whitman or any of the poetry books I have on my shelf or, you know, someone else's experience, like um, a biography, um, someone who's been through other shit before. I mean, we all have, but taking it out of your own experience and making making yourself aware that, you know, you're not the only person who's struggling or feeling like they're shit or they're an imposter or they're failing, like that's a, that's a lot of... Uh, there are a lot of resources to help you move on. What do you feel like are the largest misperceptions of what it's like to work maybe generally in a quote unquote startup, but, but also specifically for Twitter? A lot of it has to do with people. A lot of it is finding the right uh, co-founder. If you don't have one already, if you're not going into a new startup uh, or an existing startup with a partner with an X tier Y finding the right partner takes a lot of work. And I think it's, it's critical to network. It's critical to go to startup events, go to WeWork events, go to General Assembly events, go to AIGA events, other kinds of industry events. I was just at uh, the, the two conferences that I was at this fall. Um, one one was in New York, the Design Ops Conference, actually Design Ops Summit that I mentioned earlier. The other is a Clarity. Uh, it's called Clarity. It's a design systems conference. And I met people in real life that um, I had only met on Twitter, only met online, and that's great. 
So networking is one of the keys to success. I think whether you're in-house, independent, startup, Fortune 500, you never, ever, ever know where your next referral is going to come from, where your next job is going to come from, where your next job requirement, recruitment is going to come from. And uh, that's, that's, that's always going to be the case no matter where you are. Misconceptions of working at Twitter, uh, it's hard. It's really hard work. I, I don't feel, I was surprised to learn recently uh, that one of the other designers that's been here for a couple of years still feels imposter syndrome. Mm, isn't that interesting? And that is, it's really interesting. I, I didn't think that this person would have felt this way, but I was kind of relieved. I mean, not not that I wanted anyone to feel upset or pain, pained by anything, but like I, my first six months here were really hard. And I, it came to the point where I started making a list of potential places that I might go if I were to be fired. And there was one day where I came into a one-on-one with my manager and he said, do you want this job? And I said, hey, good question. I don't know. Um, <laughs> and, and I said, can I take the afternoon and get back to you? And he said, yeah. And on my way out of that meeting room, I, uh, it was you know a private manager's meeting room and there happened to be some talisker single malt on the table in front of me and I reached out for that and I poured myself a finger of talisker and it calmed my nerves and I took the afternoon off and I booked myself a massage and then I had a reset I was like okay self-care check uh taking a nap check talisker (laughs) check and the next day I was like hey thanks for that I really appreciate that you have the long view of what this role will be and the kinds of changes that I that I might affect. So it, it it took time to adjust to the pace, to the culture, to having the responsibility and the kinds of like yeah, yeah, I'd said it already. Having the responsibility to like do this work. Because nobody has been in this role before at Twitter. So although I'm not a stranger uh, to going from nothing to something, I still really needed to prove my value. And I wasn't proving it at the point that I had this meeting, this one meeting. But I guess adjusting to the cadence of like, some things move really fast, and other things move slower. And you just have to figure out how you can share your visibility with with your team. And I love the transparency of that answer. No, thanks. Uh, (laughs) It wasn't... uh, it wasn't the easiest time, but uh, I'm over it now. <laughs> well, maybe to um, take you out of the valley and we'll think about a peak. <laughs> tell us about one of your proudest or favorite professional moments as a designer. I can think of a few. One that's a favorite anecdote. I was at the uh, AIGA Yale Business Perspectives for Creative Leaders week-long conference and it was super powerful and I'm still friends with a lot of people that I met there. I learned a lot. I still go back to my notes. At the end of the week, we were given evaluations. What did you think of this lesson? What did you think of this professor? And Barry Nailbuff, who um, co-founded Honest Tea with one of his students, um, was one of our professors. And I said, I loved Barry. I loved his stories. I loved his anecdotes. Now, he sold Honest Tea to Coca-Cola, so there's no reason for him to have like still kept teaching at Yale. It was He was just doing it for fun and maybe the next business opportunity. 
So I said, hey, um, I said in my email, I, I wish that Barry's slides were as sharp as his suits. And I don't know what possessed <laughs> me to be so direct, but he called me and he's like, hey, I got your feedback. Help me make my slides sexy. Oh, wow. And I was like, holy shit. <laughs> oh, wait, this okay, thing's on. <laughs> you're on. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I'm so grateful that he took it the right way. And wasn't like, who's this asshole? But was like, okay, great, point taken. So I hear still that he mentions that <laughs> <laughs> that his slides were designed by me at future weeks of this or future instances of this uh, program. Man, that's awesome. So how to give and receive feedback, right? Like he knew exactly what to do with that, that information. But that, that was the first one that came to mind, interestingly. In 2001, I met at an AIGA portfolio review, uh, somebody named Dave Bologna, and he had great typography in his work. He had a great way of talking me through his projects. He had just graduated from Yukon stores and was looking to move to Boston. And I was like, do you want to come into the studio and talk with me about semiotics? And he's like, sure, what's that? So he looked up semiotics and we've had a friendship for 15 years and a collaborative relationship for 15 years. And when he moved out to San Francisco about a year before I did, he went in-house at Twitter. And he was one of the reasons that I think I'm here now um, because he and I have been friends because he knew that I was um, looking for an operations role because he was able to refer me to this, this role that was being created and I think that's a, it's a testament to the power of networking, the power of AIGA, and also the power of like, just not being a dick all the time to everyone you meet. Like, <laughs> if Dave and I were not friends, if Dave and I were not continuing our friendship over many years, um, or even with people who you haven't maintained a friendship with, you really just never know where the next X, Y, or Z is going to come from. And and I think like the power of being nice is important. The power of like wanting to learn and and wanting to maintain a growth mindset throughout your life and like see if you can connect as as much as you are connected to people. It's you know, it's it's life. It's a life of a designer, life of a someone who wants to make the world a better place. If that makes any sense. Absolutely. So one of my other favorite questions to ask everyone, and I'll ask of you as well, is what do you think you are most obsessed with right now? Mm, this wouldn't be called obsessed with design if you didn't ask that question. Precisely. Uh, people. The importance of getting to know people and understanding optimal conditions for people to do their best work. And it starts with people and it ends with people, but people in teams, the shape of teams, how teams configure, if they are configured and curated, or if they are self-configuring. And if you look at a team as a unit, I think around that team, you can say, this team is great at solving this kind of problem um, at this stage of uh, that problem's life or in this stage of business. And I think there's a formula somewhere to the shape of people, teams, and the projects they're working on. And as I said earlier, the place that they're doing that work. Somewhere out there, there, there's either an algorithm or a formula or somewhere in here, like maybe I've figured it out and I just don't know how to articulate it yet. But I think that there's like patterns and consistency and a formula somewhere. And I'm, I'm like 
obsessed with digging into how they work at Twitter, how they work independently, uh, how you can assess how your teams are working. I think that's part of the design ops world and uh, what the relationships are like between people and teams and in interdependencies within relationships. I mean, it's somewhere between a PhD in psychiatry, maybe an MD. Um, it's sociology. It's it's a lot of like things around that. And I have a stack of books that I want to read. I'd love to take like three months off and just read like 12 books and write a lot. <laughs> Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> Um, but instead I'm just going to go to Joshua tree this week and take a couple days off and maybe start a couple of them, maybe start like three books and see which one resonates with me the most. But I have a lot of books on like team of teams and leadership and mentorship and, uh, the best interfaces, no interface and like how to actually like, I don't, I'm not sure how any of these things are going to intersect Josh, but I feel like they will at some point. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty confident that at some point in the next year they will intersect. Or if they're intersecting already, then it's going to become clear to me why. Maybe that's a better way of putting it. Well, once you feel confident, you've figured out how all those things intersect, of course. I'm going to want a part two interview. Deal. So we can unpack all of your wisdom that you've gleaned from your, <laughs> your Joshua Tree mini retreat. <laughs> I don't know if it's wisdom or uh, dumb luck or a mix of both, but I feel like being at Twitter watching how teams work, watching how individuals make the world better through the product work, through their collaboration and the independence and interdependence of project teams and, and you know, like brand marketing product teams here. Like that all feels like it has some science to it, some chemistry to it. I don't know, really. I'm just, I'm, I'm confident enough that uh, I can continue to say, I'm curious about this and I want to learn more and I'm continuing to like capture information, anecdotes and data as, as, as I go. Yeah. Love it. Well, maybe we could end on, um, on this idea. What is maybe a favorite piece of advice that you have received in your career or maybe one of your favorite pieces of advice to pass along to other designers? My advice is don't wait. I mean, I'll be 46 in a couple of days and I feel like time is getting faster and faster. Mm -hmm. And for people who are at the beginning of their career or are stuck in a job they don't like or want to try that thing that they've never tried, do it. Like, don't wait to do it because, gosh, like Mayor Ed Lee just died of a heart attack at the grocery store last night. And that's sad. And it's it's kind of inspiring in a way in that. You really need to just like <laughs> take the first step. I think the first step is the hardest part. If you think about getting something started as a way of learning how to start it, then if you get that thing started and it's not going the way that you want, then you can revise it. You can go a different way. Taking the first step is the hardest, but if you don't like that one step, then you've only taken one. You can take another one in a different direction. and that's that's what I'm learning is really important. I mean, 11 years ago, Jack, Ev, and Biz took the first step to start Twitter, and here we are. It's a multi multi billion dollar company, and it's it's got a lot of work ahead of it. But it's it's 
revolutionized the way that we all communicate and how we are all connected and how people organize. Like Black Lives Matter wouldn't exist to the same way that it does now if it didn't have the kind of network power that Twitter uh, affords it. And a lot of other kinds of examples of, of communities and networks that, that, that work together via Twitter. But if Jack and Ev and Biz hadn't taken that one step, we wouldn't be here. Yeah, that's great advice. And also one of my favorite podcasts as a quick aside, Reply All does their regular yes, yes, no, where they unpack whether the three of them understand a particular tweet, which is, <laughs> I don't know, it's it's my one of my favorite bits of internet nerdery, but I just get the biggest kick out of that, nice. <laughs> that segment. It's awesome. Well, Josh, of course, on Twitter, but tell all of our listeners where they can track you down on the interwebs and where they can reach out. The tubes connect to my name is joshsilverman.com and uh, my story is all there. Excellent. Well, Josh, I will look forward to a part two in the coming months as you uh, consult the Oracle at Joshua Tree. (laughs) Thanks. Maybe it's a Josh thing. I don't know. I think so. I think it's meant to be. I'll find out. Okay. Thanks, Josh. Well, thank you. And thanks for being obsessed with design. Okay, kids, that is episode number one of season three, otherwise known as episode number 88 in the books. Thank you so much for listening. I wish you all a great New Year's celebration. And if you listen to this later in the year, I hope the optimism of New Year's Day is something that you take away from this episode as well. Obsessed with Design is a product of the Design Obsessed team at Miles Herndon, a branding agency in beautiful downtown Indianapolis. For all of today's show notes, please head over to obsessedshow.com and click on episodes. You'll find Josh Silverman there in the list, as well as you can listen to it directly on the website. And if you're not already, most of you I'm sure are listening on iTunes, but please hit that subscribe button so we can know who's listening to the show and learn more about our audience. If you have any suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next, please tweet to at Josh Miles or at Obsessed Show. We love listener recommendations and a lot of our shows and interviews come from referrals from listeners like you. Today's show was edited by the very talented Gen Eds at the Brassy Broadcast Company. Visit BrassyBroad.com to learn more. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.